0: I hope at some point uh, this last week you were able to wake up in the morning and uh, identify the mercies of God to you uh, afresh and be reminded of his goodness and his faithfulness um, and his kindness to you in providing everything that you need every single day. Um, I hope that uh, that song that we sang, the last one there, was an encouragement to you and that maybe this can serve as a challenge to make that a practice and a habit in your life if it is not one now. Um, to just return thanks and praise to the Lord for his mercies being new and fresh every morning that you wake up. Well, John 13, obviously, is where we're going to be back in the Gospel of John today. Some of you will remember in 2014 the Ebola outbreak. How many of you remember that? It was a very, very significant outbreak of that disease. There have been a number of those over the years, but that was by far the most extensive in number of infections and in number of deaths that happened because of it. It spread to several countries in West Africa, and there were even a few cases that uh, happened outside of the continent of Africa. There were a few in the US, I think there was a couple in the UK and other countries. And some of you will remember that there were a few Americans, some of the first Americans that contracted that disease over there were doctors, that were serving in the hospitals and they were serving with the Christian ministry Samaritan's Purse. One of those doctors named Kent Brantley, I think he may have been the first American to to get Ebola, but he got sick and was flown back to the US and he was treated for several weeks at a hospital in, in Atlanta. And ultimately he recovered from the disease and most people didn't hear too much more about him. What you may not realize is that he and his wife, who is a nurse, he's a doctor, she's a nurse, and their two kids decided in 2019 that they were going to return back to Africa and go and serve in a rural hospital, very remote. I think I read that it was about 100 miles from the nearest grocery store. So going back over to Africa drew some interest from certainly Christian media outlets and they wanted to understand why he and his wife decided to go back over there after they had, he had almost died previously five years earlier. He was interviewed about the decision and he very explicitly tied the decision to go back and serve and give the years of his life away to serve people he didn't know in a remote hospital. He tied that to his his faith. Here's what he said. Right now, I think that means moving my family to Zambia to serve at a Christian mission hospital, to serve the poor and have compassion for the people in need, and to participate in God's work of making all things new and fixing the broken things in this world. Now, that's an amazing, amazing thing to do, right? a sacrificial way to spend your life. But I will say that while that is amazing, it's not terribly unusual for Christians over the last 2,000 years. Oftentimes, the people that go and sacrifice their lives and give their lives away in situations like this to serve other people that they have no family connection to or no national connection to, oftentimes, those are Christian people. Over the centuries, Christians have given up their time, their money, their resources, and even their lives to serve others. Why has that been such a consistent action that has been taken among Christians? Why is that a reality for believers in Christ? And I think you know the answer, and it's because of the way in which our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, served others and modeled that for us. It absolutely is natural for our faith to work itself out in that way where we serve others. Now, everyone won't move to Africa and serve as an emergency room doctor in a remote hospital, but our faith automatically, should automatically and naturally work itself out in looking to others and in serving others. And one of the clearest ways that Scripture teaches that is in this passage in John chapter 13. I'd like to show you from this passage this morning three motivations to encourage our humble service to others, okay? Three motivations. So I want all three of these to encourage you, to motivate you, to help you to see service as something that flows naturally to you as a follower of Christ, and then for you to actively take steps to to participate in this paradigm of serving others all right three motivations to encourage our humble service of others and the first one of these is you have to understand and be motivated by the credentials of the preeminent servant all right chapter 13 is where we're going to be verses 1 to 17 and chapter 13 begins the second portion of the gospel of john we went all the way through chapters 1 through 12 which is the first portion of the book called the Book of Signs. And in that section, we saw Jesus perform all these miracles and do teaching and explain his relationship with God the Father. But these signs pointed to who he was. They explained and put on, on showcase his person and his ministry. And now, after our break in our series on the church, we turn to the second portion of the Gospel of John, chapters 13 through 21, and this section is often called the book of glory. So you've got the book of signs, and then you've got the book of glory. Now, it's not that Jesus' glory wasn't put on display in the first 12 chapters, but everything in these last few chapters, the second portion of the book, is in the last week of his life, and all of it points to and explains the cross And the cross is the place where his glory is most clearly seen. It's the place where the character of God and the character of Christ comes to the forefront. And we know where we're headed in this section by the very first words in chapter 13. Look there. Now before the feast of the Passover. It's significant that John mentions the Passover at the beginning of this section of his gospel. Of all of the gospels, John mentions more Passovers than any other gospel writer, and he consistently wants us to see the life and the death of Jesus as fulfilling the Passover in the Old Testament. This was the original Passover here, and it finds its purpose and its fulfillment and its full explanation in the life and the death of Jesus Christ. And it's this moment of Passover, it's what takes place in Jesus offering himself as a sacrifice that shows the full extent of his love for his people. Look at the rest of verse 1. Now, before the feast of the Passover... When Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, he knew his death was imminent. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. So let this serve as sort of a a title over the rest of this book. Everything you're going to read in Jesus's upper room discourse with his disciples, in his actions on, in going to the cross, in his resurrection, all of it in chapters 13 through 21 is spoken to the disciples and done out of his great love for them. Everything flows from that. Now that love is a significant contrast to what we find in verse 2. Look there. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, To betray him. So the words and actions of Jesus, done out of love, are in sharp contrast to what we we read here. Judas, encouraged by the devil, is going to betray Jesus out of a a sense of self centeredness. Verse 2 also helps us to see this as a cosmic battle, right? Mentioning the devil here is not accidental. He doesn't just tie this to Judas and his actions. It's actually something much bigger that's going on. It's not just some rogue disciple. This is a cosmic battle that has taken place since the Garden of Eden or even before that. God's love for mankind, his desire to bring us into a relationship with him, is in contrast to Satan's betrayal and lies." From the beginning, Satan has been a liar, a deceiver, and a murderer. He never tells us the truth. Sin never communicates the truth to us. And that is in sharp contrast to God's love for his people and for his creation. And so everything in verses 1 through 3 that we're going to read, we're going to get to verse 3 in a second. Everything about this, his love and then who he is in verse 3, is going to set us up and prepare us to read what happens in verses 4 and 5. So verse 1 has already hinted at the relationship between Jesus and the Father. You can see that there. He knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father. Verse 1 describes Christ's great love for his people. But before you get to the actions that he takes here in verses 4 to 5, you need to see who he is in verse 3. Look there. Jesus knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God. These are the credentials of Jesus, right? First of all, what do we know about him? God has given all things into his hand. Jesus here, the man sitting at this dinner with his disciples, is also the God of the universe. He is the creator. He rules over everything. Sovereign authority. He has come from God. He existed eternally in a united relationship with the Father as the one true God. That's who he is, and he's going to return back to God. We saw this at the very beginning of the Gospel of John, John 1.1. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He's always existed in this relationship. And John 17.5, he's going back into this relationship. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. So think about who it is that is sitting here with the disciples. He dwelt with the Father in perfect, loving, happy communion with the Father. Resplendent glory where they delighted in one another because of their perfections. And he existed in this relationship between, before anything else had come into existence. And then he created the world with his sovereign word and by his power. He spoke everything into existence out of nothing, and he sustains the world by that sovereign hand. He existed in perfect holiness, and he deserves nothing but the highest exaltation and the highest worship, and honor, and praise. That's who is sitting here with the disciples. You could say it this way, he matters. He infinitely matters. He is the most important being in existence as the creator. Those are his credentials. That's who he is. Now what are credentials? Your credentials are what qualify you for a particular job. For some jobs, you may need a degree. For other jobs, you may need a certain certification, credentials. And so we have Jesus' credentials here, and in light of this description, what do we find him doing? The exact opposite of what we would expect someone with this character to do, right? This is not what we expect. The President of the United States does not clean the toilets in the White House. The King of England does not peel off the wet and sweaty socks off of his servant who has been caught in a rainstorm and then warm up his feet. That is not what people in that position and with those credentials do. They do not perform menial, servant-oriented tasks. It's not how things work. But what do we find Jesus doing here? Look at verse 4. He rose from supper, knowing all of this was true of him. He rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, he tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. Now we aren't fully sure of the circumstances here. We don't know whether someone just missed out on something they were supposed to do and nobody's feet had gotten washed. We're not 100% sure, but what we do know, this is a gross job. It's not something we do in our culture, but think about the circumstances in this culture. Dusty, Roads with animal droppings on them and dirty feet as men walked around in sandals, all of that required that when you entered into someone's house, your feet needed to be washed. And apparently here, nobody had done this yet. And so Jesus puts on the clothing of a servant. That's significant. What he does in verse 4 is he Puts on and dons the clothing of a servant. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, he tied it around his waist. That's what a servant does. Then he performs a task that was lowly and was gross, and he does this for these men that he had created. And Jesus' actions here, as you see him perform this, here's what I want you to know. It's not just about their feet, though. All right? This is what his whole life and ministry were about. Service of others. He came to serve the lowest of the low. He came to serve those who had rejected him in rebellion and turned their backs on him. And he did this by taking the form of a servant, just like he does here. Philippians 2. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by, didn't lose anything, he didn't cease to be less than God, but what did he do? He put on The form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. This is what he does. This is who he is. And this is what these actions show us here. And so now we need to ask ourselves a specific question. In what way does Jesus serve through his life and ministry? It's not about washing feet, as we'll see in our next motivation. This is pointing to, it's a symbol pointing to a greater reality. And that brings us to our second motivation. We need to understand the character of his primary service. So we have his credentials, we know who he is, and we see him to, to serving, serving others in spite of who he is and because of who he is. And now you need to understand exactly what his primary serving role is. What is it all about here? And as he performs this and goes around the room, he comes to Peter, which is just glorious. Look at verse six. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? And the way this is written is there's an emphasis on you and on my. Do you wash my feet? Peter here is clearly focused on the physical act, right? He's thinking on the material plane. Jesus is thinking of something much deeper than that. Look at verse 7. Jesus answered him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. And we need to think about that for a moment, what Jesus says back to him, because this is pointing us to the deeper meaning of this symbol. This is not the first time in this gospel that we have heard this sort of language, is it? This is not the first time that the disciples have failed to understand some action or some teaching in the moment. And then John writes, after what? After Jesus' death and resurrection, they come to understand it. You may remember back an example of this is in John chapter two. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things, for cleansing the temple there? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and will you raise it up in three days, right? They're thinking on the material, physical plane, but he was speaking about the temple of his body. And when did the disciples come to understand this? When, therefore, he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. And so it's a parallel. In John 2, Jesus is talking about his death and resurrection when he talks about the temple. And the temple, the physical temple that he's talking about, is a symbol And in John 13, here, we read the same language that the disciples didn't understand, but they will later, and it's the same idea. There is a physical reality that's a symbol that points to a more significant meaning. Peter is still not picking up on it, though. Look at the first part of verse 8. Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet not getting it. And then Jesus moves the conversation more toward the reality behind the symbol. Look what he says. Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Notice there he says, wash you. He's not talking about the feet here because washing of the feet points to this greater cleansing and this greater reality. There's something, some sort of cleansing that is going to happen that causes its recipients to come to have a share with Jesus. What does that mean? They have an inheritance with him. They're partakers of something that he possesses. Peter still doesn't get it. Look at verse 9. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Still focused on the physical Reality. And so Jesus makes another point regarding this deeper cleansing in verse 10. Jesus said to him, The one who is bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean, and you are clean, but not every one of you. All right, the language is a little confusing here, but let me try to explain what Jesus is getting at. The basic point he's making here is that once you have received this deeper cleansing, It's a once-for-all sort of thing. It covers everything that needs to be covered, and it doesn't need to be repeated. And he says here, you haven't all received this deeper cleansing. Even though Judas had his feet washed, the reality of this deeper cleansing had not happened to Judas. Look at verse 11. For he knew who was to betray him, which is why he said, you're not all clean That's exactly what happened here. He'd washed his feet, but Judas was not genuinely and permanently clean. So what's the symbol of the foot washing pointing to? What's the deeper cleansing that you only receive once and that Judas did not receive? John 15.3, Jesus says this, Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. The same author in 1 John 1, 1.9 says this, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So the cleansing happens through the word of God as you receive Jesus's word. And then it happens through confession of sin and faith in him and you receive forgiveness of sins. The stain of guilt, of your responsibility to pay for your own sins before God is removed. The stain of sin is taken away as your sins are fully forgiven. And that happens through Jesus' word. It's as we hear the news, the proclamation of Jesus' work, the completion of his work on the cross for us. The offer of forgiveness and cleansing. It's as we hear that news, we recognize our own sin and we recognize our need for that cleansing. We know our guilt. We know our rebellion against God. We know we're not perfect and we're under his wrath. We receive that news, recognize that reality for ourselves And then by faith, we reach out and say, I need that cleansing. And the only way I can have it is through the Lord Jesus Christ and through the work that he has done on my behalf. It's then, as the Spirit brings new life to you through faith, that you receive forgiveness of sins and cleansing. And so verses 6 through 11 point to something deeper. And they point to something deeper that will be accomplished by Jesus humbling himself as a servant. That's why the foot washing takes place. He humbles himself as a servant and serves them to cleanse them. And that's exactly what he's going to do. Now, I read to you a little bit earlier, Philippians chapter 2. In Philippians 2, there are, there are two stages to Jesus's humbling, Right? There's two stages. The first one we read about in verses 5 through 7 where he humbles himself, lowers himself by taking the form of a servant. Just the fact that Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, the eternal Son of God, humbled himself and became a human being, the incarnation is an act of condescension. It's an act of service for us. But there's another level to his lowering himself and becoming a servant in order to serve us and benefit us. And Philippians 2 says this, And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Keep in mind the way Paul says this here in Philippians 2, okay? The cross was not just any old way to die. Jesus did not die of a heart attack. He didn't die by drowning. He didn't die by being pushed off a cliff. And I say that to put those means of death in contrast to the way that he did die and what Paul is describing here. Even death on a cross. Jesus died a death that was reserved for the lowest members of society. That's how he died. In fact, we could say that Jesus died a death that was meant to treat human beings as less than human beings. Men that were so hated and despised by those around them, by the authorities and the culture that they lived in, for the crimes they've committed, they were so hated that they were treated like animals beaten nearly to death, stripped naked, nailed to a wooden cross in order to hang there publicly and have insults and shame hurled at them while they suffered for hours on end and eventually died and often their bodies were left to be picked at and chewed up by animals and by birds. One author described it like this. Susan Sontag, who suffered for years from the cancer that eventually killed her, wrote this It is not suffering as such that is most deeply feared, but suffering that degrades. Here, in a few words, is a fundamental insight with which to view the crucifixion. If Jesus' demise is construed merely as a death, even as a painful, tortured death, the crucial point will be lost. Crucifixion was specifically designed to be the ultimate insult to personal dignity. The last word in humiliating and dehumanizing treatment. Degradation was the whole point. So understand the condescension. Understand the lowering of of himself, that he, Jesus, the most glorious king in the universe, underwent. He became a man, which was lowering himself, and he suffered, which was lowering himself again, but he suffered the shame and humiliation and death on a cross. Why? To serve you. To get rid of the stain of sin and to give us full and final forgiveness. And to bring his creatures into a relationship with him. What motivated him to do this? Look back at verse 1. When Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart. To undergo this shame and degradation. Having loved his own. Who were in the world. He loved them to the end. That's why he underwent this. And it's Here. As we start out this book of glory, it's here that you and I get to the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is why we see his glory so clearly in the crucifixion and in the cross. It's a marvelous, unfathomable thing that the God of the universe would lower himself for you and for me. It's a thing that is worthy of our amazement and worship to see what has happened for our forgiveness and cleansing. He became a servant out of love for us in order to cleanse us. And that reality hopefully is sitting in your mind right now of his condescension and his lowering of himself. That has profound implications for how you and I live life this coming week. And that's our third motivation. So you have to see his credentials before you can understand the character of his primary service. You have to understand that he was the eternal God living in glory, and he lowered himself even to the point of death. And now Jesus takes that reality of what he's going to do and what he has done in the incarnation, and he turns that reality to apply it to the disciples, And the wonderful thing about this application is there is a compelling promise at the end of it. Jesus is not being harsh here. He says all of this and puts these high demands and this high calling on us in order to benefit us because he loves us. Now he d- turns to his disciples in verse 12. Look there. When he'd washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I have done to you? He wants them to keep in mind exactly who he is. Look at verse 13. You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. He's not backing away from that. He's like, Look, I am this person. I am Lord, I am your teacher. And you need to understand that. You can't back away from his credentials. And it's his credentials that now bring out the lesson that his disciples need to learn. Look at verses 13 through 15. You call me teacher and Lord, and you're right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Now, the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross is obviously a one-time thing. The incarnation is a one-time thing. You and I can't repeat that in any form or fashion. But Jesus says the pattern of the exalted lowering himself, humbling himself, To be a servant of others out of love is something that you and I need to imitate. We need to gaze long and hard at that pattern of what Jesus did and then let that fill us with gratitude and thankfulness and let it change the way we live life. Should change our perspective. One author described the change in perspective this way. One of the ways human pride manifests itself in a stratified society is in refusing to take the lower role. But, everything's flipped on its head now. But now that Jesus, their Lord and teacher, has washed his disciples' feet, an unthinkable act, there's every reason why they also should wash one another's feet and no conceivable reason for refusing to do so. What are you going to say? What are we going to say? Well, I can't serve because, okay, okay, It doesn't hold up very well when you look at the example of Christ. Jesus presses the issue further in verse 16. Look there. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Jesus defines exactly who we are. We need to understand who we are just like Jesus understood who he was. We are both servants and messengers. As a servant, we owe our time, our effort, and our lives to the master. We are not above the master. As a messenger, we simply carry his instructions and convey them. We don't come up with the message. We do what the originator of the message has told us to do. That's all we are, servants and messengers. And the point is, if the master and the teacher did this then we are responsible to do this. Now, all of this seems like a high standard to live up to. It seems like a great challenge, and it seems maybe a bit harsh. And here's where I want you to see this compelling promise that Jesus ends with in verse 17. Look there. If you know these things, which now we do, the disciples did, here's the promise. Blessed are you if you, you do them. Now, Jesus uses this word blessed here, and it's probably not the way the word that you're thinking of when you typically think of blessed. We typically think of blessed as indicating God's approval of us. And so there's a way of reading this that would say, well, if you will follow through on this, then God will be really happy with you. That's not what Jesus is promising here. This is the same word that is used at the beginning of the Beatitudes in the Sermon on the Mount. And that word is not talking about divine approval, God's perspective on us. What Jesus is describing here and in the Beatitudes with this word is a human life that is a good life. It is well lived You could use the word flourishing. It is whole. It is complete. It is as it should be. And so Jesus here is flipping our worldly paradigm on its head. He is saying, look, the pathway to a good life, a life that is satisfying and content and whole and complete, the pathway to that sort of life is through humble, sacrificial service. Of others, But the good life does not come from hearing these words, from knowing the example of Christ, and then walking out of here and going about your normal daily life. There is an intimate connection in Scripture over and over again between knowing and doing. And the Bible presents the picture for Christians as being people who must make that connection. It's hypocrisy if we don't. Jesus is promising here. He's holding out a compelling picture of the good life to us. And it's counterintuitive, there's no doubt. But in faith, we trust that this is the way to live well. It's a life of satisfaction and joy, and it comes from knowing all three of these motivations and seeing the example of Christ And then going out and putting it into practice. So let me give you a few questions to consider as we finish up this morning, all right? Four of them. First, what activities in my life keep me from noticing the needs of others? That's where most of the time I mess up. I don't even notice the needs of others. But what activities in my life keep me from noticing the needs of others and ultimately keep me from serving them in tangible ways? What activities keep you so focused on self that you fail to even be attentive to those around you and the ways that you can lovingly serve them? Second question Do I honestly view a life of serving others as a good life? Is a life well-lived? Is a life that is is flourishing and the way you were designed to live? Is that honestly how I think about life? Giving my life away unnoticed in service of others, that is how I want to spend my life. Do I honestly think that way or is my idea of a good life tied to money, pleasure, and comfort with self at the center? Because that's very much how our culture trains our sinful hearts to view the good life. It's me doing what I want to do all the time and it's tied to money and pleasure and comfort. Third, do I have an overly high opinion of myself that keeps me from actively serving those in need? And then fourth, who is one person that you can serve this week with an encouraging word And what's one action you can take to serve someone else in a small way? Just some questions to try to drive your thinking a little bit as you see these three motivations that should encourage us into humble service of others based on the example of Christ. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we are amazed at what you have done for us. Help us to never grow bored or tired of the condescension, the humility, the lowering of yourself that was done for our benefit and out of love for us. We thank you for the cleansing, the forgiveness of sins that are offered through your word as we hear your word and respond in faith. And I pray that this picture of what you have done would so change our perspective, that we would walk out of here more willing and more desirous to serve others in a sacrificial and humble way. We thank you for what you've done for us. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.